Hi, this is David Abel. I am the Chief Academic Officer for English Language Arts for Unbound Ed, and I'm here with Mr. Judson O'Dell, the Chief Executive Officer of O'Dell Education. O'Dell Education is a organization that does a couple things. That they develop free open educational resources, literacy curriculum for grades 6 to 12. They also do assessment consulting work and professional development. And so I'm here and I'm welcoming Judson O'Dell to our studio. We're going to talk a little bit about something that you focus on with your curriculum. Argumentation. You have a unit on argumentation for grades 6 to 12. Can you talk to me about why argumentation is so important and what are some common misperceptions about argumentation, especially in the secondary grades? I think we chose to focus on argumentation for a few reasons. One is it certainly has a special place in the Common Core, as it's stated in the appendix, uh, that the developers of the Common Core recognize that analyzing arguments and writing arguments, being involved in the process of argumentation, is a particular important skill for college and career readiness. And we would add life readiness. Mm -hmm. I think that interacting with others' perspectives and, and positions and arguments around a topic of substance and importance is the foundation of democracy and civic life especially in the secondary you know once you get into 9 12 you know these are students who will be voting some of them these are students who are involved actively in in their own social life and in their uh, community and this is where it's really important to see issues as issues that everyone within a society comes to from a different perspective has different reasons and along with its importance we felt the shift that we see in the in the common core was also important that there's a shift from analysis and focus on persuasion and the art of persuasion which is traditionally how a lot of ELA, ELA teachers and and instruction has approached this sort of writing the shift away from persuasion to argumentation where the the logos of the the pathos ethos logos triad is is privileged that for sure those persuasive techniques are interesting and they're important and, and widely used and widely in used. an election cycle I might add <laughs> yeah but it's also important to recognize where those are being used and where there is where there's actual claims and evidence to support those or way different ways of looking at the evidence and once you have a foundation of uh, an ability to think and write with the ideas of claims and premises and reasoning and then you're able better to actually see the the other moves the more rhetorical moves mm -hmm. um, where authors or speakers or political candidates sure work on their credibility or emotions um, I think you know we, we've done that well and we just need to now learn a little bit of how to develop instruction around around that logos did that answer both your questions I think so. I mean, I think the common misperceptions are related to persuasion versus argument. And I, I think something that I'm being de devil's advocate for a moment, I would say that the thrust of argument and the emphasis in argument is in some ways this utopian ideal of what we want students to do. And as someone who has taught freshman composition classes and had other professors coming to me saying, these kids can't write arguments. 
you know, and here they are in college. But I also think against this utopian ideal, there isn't a lot of the kind of arguments that we want students to compose in their daily lives. Do you know what we, I mean? They're not, ex- they're not exposed to, to good arguments. They're not, they're not I, I don't see, I don't think an opinion editorial from the New York Times is a necessarily, and people will disagree with me, I don't think that's a good argument. I think that's a persuasive essay. Yeah. Well, they're out there. I mean, we, we were working today on the grade nine unit around responses to acts of terror. Mm-hmm. And the document that we were delineating as a seminal argument was a congressional uh, authorization of, of the use of force to President Bush. And, I mean, there's an argument there. It, you know, there's, there's little persuasion going on. I mean, mm. it, they, it's interesting when we looked at it closely. In some places, there is a lack of evidence, uh, but there are claims. There is a, there is a definite pr- position, and we talked a lot today about the perspective. You know, as, as Congress, what is their responsibility? What is their relationship to this issue? Mm-hmm. It's a particular one, and they had a particular position, and and it was a. It's a. Not only was it a, a position, but it was a position that has real cons- consequence, obviously. And they had some evidence, but not all of their premises were backed up with evidence. But it wasn't. It wasn't a document that was written with a lot of persuasive mm-hmm. techniques. It was a. It's a very bland document in right. in that way. So in the annals of power, you might tend towards argument writing. Like where, where things really matter, when you're talking about a legal court case or you're in Congress, when you are writing for the general public, and what did Daniel Willingham say? They know a little about a lot of things. Yeah. It's interesting. I thought, I, now I'm, I'm tracking with you on the utopia picture. And I think that um, I want to come back to your rhetorical stuff, but first I want to get this, this thing because I had a similar thought, which is that mile-wide sort of trivial pursuit sort mm-hmm. of understanding of the world is generally, and that, you know, that's what our, the texts in our culture sort of track in. Sure. And that's, so if you have success with those texts and with those conversations, that's the sort of knowledge you have. That's where we're at. And, yeah. and sort of the evidence shows that to be successful in that zone, you know things in that way. And the sort of the evidence he was showing sort of it's kind of cyclical that, you know, yeah, it's like, okay, it is a new thing to actually want deep knowledge in something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it is until graduate school where you are really asked to understand something deeply. <laughs> and it's, it's, that's when you take something and you focus on it and you go deep on it. I think that we want, we would want a little bit more depth to our own, our own life. This yeah. is not just now... 12th grade, you know, you think about 12th grade going on into our lives, I think we do need to recognize that evidence shows us, and the news shows us, that that's not exactly how things run these days. Yeah. And it isn't, unless you get in sort of specialized context where people really care about the evidence that you have, and really care about your claims, because they have real implications within your direct community. Right. Show me the effects of hydrofracking on my water table because right. I, I can get all of the rhetoric, but I my, I live here. I'm very interested in that evidence, you know. So it isn't until you get to a very localized and specific situation that people begin to care about real depth of understanding. Our general sort of zone is not that, and and that's what he was showing today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will. I want to go back to this idea of one of the things that we saw today is we moved from the congressional authorization 
to immediately to President Bush's initial response. Mm -hmm. Already, he had some argumentation in there, but it was all clothed in very powerful, evocative imagery and lots of lots of emotion and lots of religious. Uh, he ends his little speech with quoting the Bible, you know, so it's very explicit that, and, and it was interesting to see. I, obviously, he wasn't reading something like the resolution, which right. happened seven days later, right. wasn't going to be appropriate. So again, it's not as if we need to sort of ignore the rhetoric because it's there, or even use it, or, you know, we need to be able to understand it and use it because it's effective and it is appropriate in situations. Yeah. Um, and and it, sometimes it just, it's beautiful. And sometimes it's beautiful. We were yeah. all moved, you know. The, the room was silent listening to the speech, really. Hmm. But I think that for our students, we want more. We see some of the problems when we just track in ethos and pathos. Yeah. And I think even beyond or apart from just the can we get the whole claim evidence reasoning idea yeah. I think what's equally as important is the perspective idea mm-hmm. that to understand around issues that we have varying perspectives and those perspectives come from <coughs> our personal relationships to the topic and our involvement in the topic our stake in the topic our knowledge of the topic and that's something that you know, if we can't get everyone to sort of speak rationally because we can't we don't but we at least can get ourselves to understand perspective a bit better and that 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 is has a role in in how we understand how people view and talk about our central issues that that that's that's also in, in itself a significant learning objective and it strikes me as really ironic because as someone who really greedily consumes articles written about education and research and just a lot of stuff that sometimes I think a lot of people who care a lot about education themselves are not engaging in critical thought about how another perspective may have some validity. And so even in this field where we're trying to encourage critical thought, it's like, do as I say, not as I do. Because it's often, and again, this plays out, you know, in a lot of districts, like the charter versus district school thing, and what have you, um, and even in, in sort of the uh, the backlash against against the Common Core, that their people are just become very fixed in maybe it's more than perspective, maybe it's actually an ideology about what they what they represent, what they care about, and they can't. Their ideology is such that they cannot really bridge that gap between where they are and someone else's perspective. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think any educational reform is going to solve the basic problems of humanity in oh, the way not? we think. <laughs> but I do think that, again, we today we focused on the idea that just the idea of, okay, so let's get, get some background knowledge on the topic before we begin to assess arguments. Okay, so what does that look like? First, if you just hand students two pieces of background texts and then move on, that, that's modeling them that you know a topic off of two texts. That's what we're showing them. Mm-hmm. Whereas, come, and, and also you could, and all the, the model too is, uh, so what do you think, and again, what do you think, and then let's support your argument. If, if argumentation is framed for that for students, in the way we're teaching, we're already reinforcing sort of that slim thinking, right? So you can conceive of teaching argumentation where you spend a couple weeks just getting to know the topic before it's even expected students to have a position 
and that they go through multiple perspectives to, to develop their initial understanding of a topic before they're evaluating arguments. So it's modeled to students this, this process whereby you might withhold some positioning mm -hmm. until you know more. Right. And again, we're not going to solve all the problems, but just beginning to sort of frame that for, for students that, hold on, I'm going to hold off a little bit till I yeah. know a little more. Even though I'm already beginning to know what I think or I'm just suspending that conviction. Yeah, you know, right, right, that's, right. That's tough and, you know, we don't naturally do it for sure. So getting back to the, the, the actual unit and how it's, um, you know, how you've, how it's been implemented, what feedback have you received from teachers and coaches and principals about this particular unit when you're out in the field? And maybe the follow-up question is the more important one. Like, have you heard people saying, I like it, but a roadblock to me doing this is this? I would say that the thing we hear most about this particular unit mm -hmm. is the relevance of the topics. Mm. They're engaging topics. I mean, it's in, it's in the, the language of the standards that at this level you need substantive topics. Right. What does that mean? Part of the work we were doing today was to explore the question, the idea that we can't expect students to do the sort of analytic things that we want in their analysis of texts and evaluation of texts and their own writing without a substantive topic. There's just yeah. a, a flimsy little non-relevant... School uniforms. Yeah, you know, there's, there's, just not, there's not richness to the ideas there that allow them to evaluate perspective, to see how things are to, to see how different people use the same evidence. They require rich substantive topics. So a lot of the feedback we get is just how engaging these topics are for students, especially if you get at the 9, 12 level. They really are ready for lots yeah. of things. Yeah. And... They can handle the they, war on terror. They can handle the war on terror, you know? They can handle security versus uh, personal freedom and, mm -hmm. and privacy. You know, they can handle these things. They can handle hydrofracking, you know? That's, <laughs> so, you know, the w thing we get the most is, wow, our kids love these topics. They're, they're real to them. Uh, which is important because it's tough. The other th question, you know, the roadblock would be the significant amount of time required to do this sort of thing. Time. Yeah. How do you actually want me to spend four weeks on an argumentation unit? Because that's what it takes. You know, I you know, I don't Only think four? You, I don't think <laughs> at least four. You know, I don't think you can do the sorts of things that we want to see them do uh, in these expectations without without some significant time. So we we get often really this much time on this. So I would say. It's pretty. It's important that it's so engaging because you're asking kids to be on the same topic for four. They will do that. Yeah. And if it's if it's engaging for sure, especially when they start to really get into the ideas. Um, but then I would argue, you are addressing a lot of learning objectives throughout these four weeks. It's not just the argumentation standards. The, those those pieces are not the things that you start the year out with. You know, mm -hmm. they they synthesize and use a lot of the other expectations that are articulated in the standards across all of them. So it's some time, but just sort of like in the research unit, one of the feed pieces of feedback we used to get from the teachers on the research unit, you want me to spend this amount of time on this? And I would have to say, yeah, because you are addressing reading. There's independent right. reading. There's, there's Is that where the, the anxiety was? Just that they were going to like miss something? Or is the anxiety also in somehow that my leader is, isn't going to get this and isn't going to understand why this is taking so long? Or a little bit of both? 
I think that teachers want to make sure their students are prepared for what we expect of them. Mm -hmm. Just in general, for the courses, for assessments, for graduation, they want to do their job. And if they're spending time on something, it means they're not spending time on something else. And they want to know that what I'm doing is going to prepare kids for the expectations we have of them. So when you're asking them to spend much more time on something that they've done much more cursorily in the past, then the natural thing is to say, oh my goodness, so what am I missing here? Are my kids going to be prepared? So we would have to say, look, they're doing all these things. If you look at the standards, if you look at the expectations we have, they're, they're addressing all of these things as they go through. They're, they're doing it, though, through a different way. They're doing it through a, diff, a, a topic that they're engaged in. So this is a, a question we call the magic wand question. This is a, a question that my colleague, Amy Rudek, came up with. And we originally used this when we were interviewing candidates for full-time jobs at our organization. And it's always very interesting how people respond. And this is the question. If you could wave a magic wand and convince every teacher at the secondary level to make one change in their instructional practice, what would it be? I, I would say, especially at your secondary level, and we're talking 9-12. Uh, well, really 6-12. 6-12? We're talking 6-12? Yeah. I think my magic wand wouldn't be directed entirely at the ELA teacher. Ooh. I think the magic wand would be directed at the school to take a much wider, broader approach and understanding of literacy. I think that there are ways that the ELA teacher can shift her understanding about her job when it comes to teaching literacy, and there are ways that administrators can think of their job when it comes to literacy mm -hmm. and all of the content areas. What this would require, though, is it's dismantling a lot of the general structure that we have. You know that, that we've had for years about how to think about disciplines and teaching and jobs and education. Yeah. You know, we're we're fighting against and pre-service. Yeah, we're, we're fighting against graduate schools and education here. Mm -hmm. We're starting a whole pathway of academic thinking and structures. But I, I think that literacy, if anything, especially at the secondary level, I mean, but really throughout, you know. It's, you know, it's, it's at the secondary where it really gets sort of broken apart, you know, and we should just put them together. Like I, someone said today, just think about this as, a, you know, a primary teacher, you know, that, that we have to deal with literacy across everything, that it's always there. And um, my magic wand would be that the whole school could see literacy as their job and because of its importance and because of, uh, I, you know, I think that that's sort of what we're going to have to do to meet some of these gaps. But that means a lot of things. You know, in order to do that, you need to change the expectations of the teachers and their jobs because they, they all have, each content area has their own assessments and evaluations that they have to deal with. So, and literacy isn't always, is rarely one of them. So major structures have to shift so that everyone is comfortable Again, they all want to prepare their students for the learning objectives that are in their in their can in their control, and that you know, that's what's on their mind. That you know, so we want to make sure that across the board that all of their learning objectives that they're responsible for with their students are supportive of the development of literacy.
That's my magic wand. If we could do that for all teachers, that they all saw it as their role, and it was a comfortable role because it was aligned to the expectations that they had for their jobs. So again, that's not just the ELA. The ELA teacher has to shift a little bit because she might have to focus a little bit on some different things. She might have to see her job as more as literacy than literature. That's, you know, literature as a part. She has the particular role of lifting up literature within the larger literacy objective. So she has to shift a bit. But there's much more shifting institutionally around what the objectives and responsibilities for each teacher in the whole entire building are. That would be my mention. All right, thank you. <laughs>